Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Right, and we have a special, very special guest. Yes, we have a guest host. Our sister Liz. Yes, and some of you may remember Liz from last year about this time. Last year, Liz did what has turned out to be our most popular ever episode, the Kyron Horman episode, whose number we can't remember right now. Do you have an, an update on Kyron, Liz? Um, not a real update. The eighth anniversary of his disappearance was this past June, and his biological mother, Desiree Young, on her Facebook had this announcement that something big was coming and to keep tuned in. And as far as I can tell, no major news transpired after that. So mm. it was a little bit of a, whether it was wishful thinking on her part or what, yeah. you know, it yeah, nothing happened. The stepmother, who we all kind of have under a, yes. a bit of a cloud of suspicion. Um, Terry Moulton got married a few months ago in the back. Good for her. I wonder if she has any stepchildren. Mm-mm. Well, I hope not. And that was episode 30, in oh. case you want to listen. Okay. I think we always say episode 30 when we don't know. <laughs> it was. I looked <laughs> okay. it up. It I should have checked my phone. Do you have any updates, Becky? No. I don't. E- oh, I kind of have one. Todd Colehead. Ugh. From episode two, two. has oh. apparently indicated that, and you can go back, his South Carolina serial killer, episode two, has indicated he may have killed two more before he killed the four people at the motorcycle shop. Oh. And I haven't seen anything more about it. They're looking into it. And you know how serial killers do once they're in prison for the rest of their lives. They like to throw out little tidbits yes, once in a while. They like to keep, it seems like they like to keep in the public eye. They like to keep having attention. They probably get tired of that. boring yeah. in prison. But Liz has another Oregon. Oregon-related, yes, I would say. It's not, because she's here yeah. from Oregon. Yes, Portland, Oregon. Portland, where she's the at. other Portland. We're the in other, Portland, Portland, Maine, Portland. right now. And in if our there's some ba- house. right, if there's some background noise, it's because we're recording at our in the guest bedroom at our parents' house, <laughs> and with Congress Street right in Portland, over and yeah. you and ten it, feet away. So anyway, Liz. Well, my case that I'm going to talk about today is a very maybe remotely possibly an accident. Or increasingly, um, almost certainly, a crime. And if it's a crime, there are a number of big questions. How did a seemingly loving family, well-known, showing up at music festivals and political rallies, how did such a family devolve into an act of family annihilation, possibly? How was a family where parents were investigated for serious child abuse charges over three states allowed to in the words of one of the child caseworkers, fall through the cracks. It's mm. such a tragic end. Because you're wondering what case I'm talking about. This is a, the summary in a late April summation in the Oregonian, my local newspaper. A 15-year-old boy featured in a widely shared photo of him hugging a Portland police officer in 2014 is one of two children still missing after an SUV with their family inside plunged off a Northern California cliff. Devante Hart and his sister Hannah 16 have yet to be found since the wreckage was discovered March 26 by a passerby off Route 1 near Westport, California. The crash killed Jennifer Hart and Sarah Hart, both 38, and their children, Marcus Hart, 19, Abigail Hart, 14, Jeremiah Hart, 14, and Sierra Hart, 12. I'm going to start with a kind of synopsis of the investigation of this really horrible occurrence. Then I'm going to look at the history of this family leading up to the tragedy. 
Uh, by the end, I'm going to consider some larger issues, including adoption policy, the lack of oversight over uh, adoption in this country and in various states, and the phenomenon of family annihilation. Mm, um, wow. Another thing that may be relevant is how white middle class adoptive parents are treated compared to African-American biological families. Oh, I can't believe there would be a difference. I know, it's very hard to believe, but yeah. this case really kind of brings forward some, some big issues. The first news reports of what seemingly at first seemed to be an accident on March 26, 2018, a passerby along Highway 1 in Westport, California, calls 911 after looking down a 100-foot embankment and seeing an SUV upside down on the rocky shoreline. Five people are found dead. The two adult women are inside and three children outside the van. Mm. Hey, raise your hand if when you first read about it, you said that wasn't an accident. Uh, me. Yeah, yeah, me. me yeah. I know. Yeah. It just didn't seem, although we have driven along that coastline. This is the Mendocino oh, yeah. coast. Yeah. And yeah. it is it is that kind of hairy drive. Yeah. There are not like lots of guardrails. There's yeah. plunging cliffs. It's not out of the po- realm just of possibility. Like I was going to say, our first episode, the Yoga Twins. Yeah. 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 So, you know, but I immediately thought yeah. it was probably something more. By March 28th, the women are identified as Jennifer and Sarah Hart, and their children as Marcus, Jeremiah, and Abigail. Three of the other children, Devante, Hannah, and Sierra, remain missing. At that point, the sheriff, Tom Allman, is not willing to say anything other than it's a continuing investigation and they're looking for the remaining three children. By March 29th, the search for the three children continues and they are looking into why the SUV plunged off the cliff. The authorities don't know for sure that the missing children were in the car, but they are were acting on the assumption that they were. On March 31st, the officials reveal the speedometer on the Hart's work SUV was, as they say, pinned at 90 miles per hour oh. as it went off the cliff. Oh. So this is the first indication that almost certainly this that thing was, was not. Flying. By April 2nd, officials say the crash may have been intentional, saying data taken from the family's SUV uh, shows the vehicle came to a complete stop at the Route 1 pullout before speeding off the cliff. The search for missing children becomes a, in quotes, recovery effort. Mm. And that day, Sheriff Tom Allman, Mendocino County Sheriff, says, I'm to the point where I'm no longer calling this an accident. I'm calling it a crime. And one of the other things, too, is that there were no skid marks that would mm-hmm. be, you would have if it just sort of careened off, accidentally careened off the road. Right, so no one put uh, the brakes on. Yeah, and then there were no sign of brakes being up. April 13th, California Highway Patrol officials tell reporters that Jennifer Hart had a blood alcohol level of 0. 0.102. Ooh which is well, well above the legal limit. I think the legal limit is 0. 0.08. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so she was she was thoroughly intoxicated when she drove the SUV off the cliff. Captain Bruce Carpenter also told reporters toxicology reports indicated that Sarah Hart, the other adult female, had a significant amount of the ingredient primarily in Benadryl in her system. Two of the three children also had Benadryl type of substances in their system. And you may know that Benadryl, that's an antihistamine used for allergies, is also a sleep aid. I mean, it makes you sleepy. Very drowsy. And some people take it as a sleep aid. Yeah. And it, the indication was that the 
the amount of the substance in their system was more than what you would be taking if you were just taking it for allergies. So there's the suspicion that either knowingly or unknowingly they were drugged to make them sleepy and, and you know, compliant and compliant mm-hmm. or, or, or unaware, unaware, oblivious. April 17th, 2018, authorities announced that a body found in the Pacific Ocean surf near the crash site April 7th belongs to Sahara Heart 12. Two of her siblings, Devante and Hannah Hart, remain missing. They are presumed dead. One of the last sort of updates on this, I'll mention it now, is that May 10th or so, they, um, I think it washed up in the surf or something. Um, someone on that coast found the clothing of a young female, including jeans and a shoe. And they found the rather skeletal remains of a foot in that mm. shoe. Oh, yeah, that they did. They suspect yeah. it may be the remains of Hannah. You know, because mm-hmm. Hannah and Devante are the only ones who have not been definitively found yet. Apparently, it was inconclusive DNA testing, and they're trying to find blood relatives of Hannah who can because she was adopted. She was adopted. Uh, they all all children the children were adopted. Right. So I'll mention that right up front. All these children were adopted. They were all African American. Jennifer and Sarah, the mothers were white uh, women from the Dakotas. And I'll get into the whole adoption, how this happened and how they were adopted. So 2004 is the earliest known public record that shows Jennifer Hart and her, then, as she was called, Sarah Gengler, both from South Dakota, residing in Alexandria, Minnesota. They had met in college. Their educational backgrounds were they had both majored in ed- education. Jennifer, mm. apparently, an elementary education. Jennifer apparently never graduated. And Sarah graduated with a degree in elementary education Neither women made any, had there's any record of them ever pursuing a job or career in the education field. Jennifer usually did not work outside the home, especially once they had the children. Sarah is the one who worked pretty much, and she mainly basically worked in retail through their entire Was Jennifer history. the one with the degree? No, Sarah oh, was the Sarah, one with the degree. Okay, okay. Um, Jennifer also was the one who uh, was the primary caregiver of the children. By April of 2005, the couple was licensed to provide child foster care in Douglas County. They also, by the way, at some point, I believe, did get legally married. They said in Connecticut. I found an interesting account in a, I think it was actually a Washington State newspaper, of living with them from one of their former foster children. Mm. I, I couldn't find anything specific. Various people said that their Things didn't go too well with their foster children, but I only found specifics hmm. on this one. And she was a 15-year-old high school student who was really having trouble at home. She voluntarily went into foster care. She lived with them for probably well over a year, she thinks. She said things were great the first six months. She did say Jennifer was the one who was the more sort of dominant person in the relationship and was the one who was moody. She said that a couple things happened. One of them was that they went to a Green Bay Packers game. Jennifer apparently was a huge fan. They each brought footballs to get signed. Where were they living? And they were in Minnesota. Oh, this is in Minnesota. Right. Okay. And they were went to get footballs signed. And uh, some of the players came out. I they said the name. I don't remember the name. Yeah. What a famous, you know, big Brett football player. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, but anyways, he was a big deal. They approached him, and he chose the young teenagers' football to sign. Apparently, Jennifer Hart was absolutely <laughs> bullshit about it. <laughs> oh my god! And apparently, just called her a brat. Said that she was acting like a brat and refused to speak to her for days. Wow. So Whoa. she said there were things like that that would happen where Jennifer would get really, really angry over really inconsequential things. And so they were talking about adopting three young children and they were talking to her about how what a great big sister she would and they were all excited. They took her to a therapy session. She went to the therapy session and the therapist said, I'm sorry. 
but your foster parents don't think it's a good fit anymore. So after this session, you're going with another foster family. Wow. So wow. they like kind of... They basically dumped her. They, the, so so they told her she was going to the therapy session for one reason, but it was it, really to dump her. Right. And I think wow. it was a routine. I think it was a routine. It, you know, yeah. That was my... Yeah, they yeah. probably go. Yeah. They and probably. they had basically been stringing her along saying that she was going to be part of this family. You know, when they got these three young children, she would be part of this family. And they more or less just dumped her at the therapist. And she never wow. saw them again. That's wow. horrible. Yeah. And so there's one other thing that's disturbing, and she found out about this later. They had told, whether it was the foster care people or whatever, maybe because they were questioned about why they just sort of dumped this girl, that she had had all kinds of behavior problems, including, and this is going to be relevant later, um, that she would hunt through the garbage cans looking for food. and you know, They of, told this to the authorities. To, to the authorities. Yeah. And she didn't know about this till I think, maybe the crime. And she was reading Probably. about it and reading about these accounts. And she was flabbergasted. She said she never did anything like that. And they, at that point, they were all eating properly. And she doesn't know why. She's mystified as to why they would say that. Mm. And um, so I have some theories about that. But oh, it, it's a little yeah. foreshadowing of things to come. Yeah. Uh, so in 2000, by this time, Sarah Hart is calling herself Hart. She's changed her name. It doesn't mention in my Oregonian timeline that I'm kind of working off of here that they got married. But I have read in other sources that they did get married. In uh, August of 2006, a Harris County District Court in Texas judge orders the parental rights of the biological parents of Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra to be terminated. There are six children who are adopted. All different three, groups. two sibling groups, oh, okay. three each. Oh, okay. So there are three kids from one biological family, three kids so, from another. So the three Harris County kids are all siblings. Okay. Right, right. Okay. So that's happening in Texas. In the meantime, Jennifer and Sarah Hart adopt, in 2006, adopt Again, three siblings, Marcus, Abigail, and Hannah. I don't know anything about their prior adoptive or foster care, or but I, I'm going to be telling you quite a bit about Devante and Sierra and Jeremiah. So they have adopted by September 2006 three siblings who were quite young at the time. And in the meantime, there's a whole thing going on with Devante and Jeremiah and Sierra. Um, and as you'll see, they're placed in foster care, and I'll tell you more about what happens to them before they end up being adopted by Jennifer and Sarah. So I'm going to talk later about the biological family of Devante, Sarah, and Jeremiah and how they lost custody of the children because uh, they contested it and they fought very hard to keep those children. And um, Their parents did? Yeah. Uh-huh. They, not a parent, an aunt. So in September of 2008, according to a police report from Alexandria, Minnesota, Hannah, then six, tells authorities that one of her mothers bruised her with a belt. Asked about the beating... Jennifer and Sarah Hart tell a police investigator and social worker that the girl had fallen down the stairs. Uh-huh. Um, in 2009, Jennifer and Sarah adopt Devante, Sierra, and Jeremiah. So they already have three children they'd adopt in 2006. By 2009, their adoption of these three other kids is finalized. All They're all coming from Texas, uh, these adoptive kids. An article from Paper Trail, a New Zealand-based uh, news outlet, described his adoption according to Jennifer. The article said that by age four, the boy had been abused, neglected, shot at, and had endured other traumas. Devante. Devante. The thing that's interesting, this is all coming from Jennifer. They would use any kind of questioning of the behavior of their own treatment of the children and behavior of the children. Uh, Jennifer and Sarah would tell these horrific stories of the children's prior life before being Uh. adopted. From everything I've been able to read, 
most of it is untrue. Right. So basically what they're, they're doing is kind of blaming the kids' behavior. And people believe them, which we'll talk about later. Right. right. One of the arguments I make is one of the reasons why people believe them was it played into racial stereotypes. You know, that they're all these, oh, they came from these horrible drugged out families and there was all this horrible abuse and gunplay. How old were those kids when they adopted them? They were very young. Well, Devante was four. Yeah. I guess you can... Yeah. Kind of figure out the others. Yeah, I that. think Sierra was a bit younger. I think it was two, four, six. Okay. Something like right. that. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing to note is that before the, the second group of siblings are adopted, the child protection services in Minnesota already have them on their radar because they've already, there's already been an abuse charge. Already have them. Sarah yeah, and with, Jennifer. Yeah. Sarah and Jennifer right. already have the thing where, um, Hannah, has accused them, accused one of them of beating her. You know, so there's already a kind of allegation. There's another incident in November 2010. This time, Abigail Hart, then six, a teacher discovers bruises all over her upper body, um, from her sternum to her navel and also on her back. Wow. And the girl says Jennifer Hart hit her with a closed fist, put her head in a cold bath, and hit her again. She was then grounded, the girl told police, which meant she had to stay in bed and miss lunch. Wow. There's a lot of food deprivation that you're going to be hearing about. What happens is once the investigation takes place and interviews and everything, Sarah Hart pleads guilty. She basically says she's the one who hit mm. uh, Abigail, and she says, yes, it did get out of control. Uh. The horrible thing is the whole thing apparently was based on a penny that they said they found a penny in her pocket, and uh, she said she found it, and they claimed she lied about it, and that apparently was what instigated the beach. Wow, because <laughs> you never find a penny. Yeah. Yes, so Sarah basically is taking the blame, and she pleads guilty. She gets a suspended sentence, like a 90-day suspended sentence. Um, The next day, after the the sentence has been filed, all six of the Hart children are taken out of public school, and they never attend public school again. Oh, who does that sound like? And they, (laughs) the Turpins. (laughs) So they didn't suffer any, there were no repercussions about the adopted children because of her. Right. These children were already formally adopted at this point. Where Hannah, two years before, had made this allegation, the adoption of the second set of kids had not been finalized at that point. And some people said at that point there should have been more, more oversight yes. of and maybe looking more thoroughly into what was going on with them. But, yeah, by the time things really start to hit the fan, they have formally adopted all six kids. Mm. So so um, I'm going to read a little bit from a really good Washington Post article. By the way, most of my sources are the Oregonian, and I tried Seattle Times, but they had a paywall. Um, mm. And there's this really good article from the Washington Post and a couple other. There was one Minnesota newspaper Alexandria, Minnesota is a small town about 100 miles southeast of Fargo, North Dakota. Most of the people live there also grew up there. They went to the same schools, boated on the same deep blue sky, shopped in the same stores. They know a lot of each other's secrets. Mm. The Hart family was different. Jennifer and Sarah grew up in small towns in neighboring South Dakota and met as college students in 1999. In 2004, they moved to Alexandria, buying a house on a tiny tree-lined street. Sarah worked as a manager at the Herberger's department store. Jennifer did occasional odd jobs. There's an article from the Oregonian that gets into all the issues dealing with foster care and adoption. This is where I've got the information that Jennifer Howard had studied to be an elementary school teacher but never graduated at Northern State University in South Dakota. And Sarah also had a degree in elementary education from Northern State University, but never got licensed as a teacher or applied to be a teacher anywhere. Um, so, After adopting Marcus, Hannah, and Abigail in 2006, 
Jennifer stayed home with the kids. A liberal white lesbian couple with three adopted children of color stood out in a conservative county that is 97% white. But the family also stuck out for other reasons, according to others who knew them. Barbara Hines, the listing agent for the house Sarah and Jennifer bought, recalled having dinner with the family in 2006. So this is very soon after they adopted right. those kids. So it's the problem started, it sounds like, almost immediately. Mm. The children did not speak, Hines remembers. I really felt there was something that wasn't quite right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. A relative of Jennifer's, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss private matters, said Jennifer often erupted at the children. The kids couldn't do anything without getting into trouble, the relative said. If the kids did anything she thought was wrong, she would snap her fingers and say, get in the corner, no food for you. Oh, wow. Family members and others who questioned her child-rearing were pretty much cut out, said the relative. Jen wouldn't have anything to do with you if you disagreed with her. It sounds like by the time the tragedy happens, Jennifer and Sarah had pretty much been out of contact with their family for years. Mm. So, yeah. so you're going to, you know, with all these red flags. Yeah. Yeah. Several people recall the children walking around town in single file. They wouldn't fight or be silly. They were perfect kids, which didn't seem normal to me, said Lorraine Feely, who lived across the street with her husband. It was like they were programmed. When Feely commented to Jennifer about the children's, in quotes, perfect behavior, Jennifer snapped back, they are not perfect. <laughs> she didn't speak to me after that, Feely. Wow. Well. <clears throat> In 2010 and 2011, Alexandria Schools reported six incidents involving the children to the State Department of Human Services, including wow. reports that the children had been rummaging through trash for food and taking food from other students. Hmm. At first, school officials notified the Hartsbuff incidents. In January 2011, for example, after Hannah told the school nurse that she hadn't eaten that day, school officials called Sarah. But Sarah accused Hannah of, in her, in quotes, playing the food card. Mm. (laughs) As I roll my eyes, you can't see it, but I mean, oh yeah, she's playing the food card. Right. I do that all the time. Me too. And instructed school officials to, in quotes, just give her water. Ah. The school, hopefully they ignored her and gave Ah, the poor kid some food. The school eventually stopped calling the Hearts Market Show after realizing the children were being punished after, you know, they were told of these reports. There were also signs of physical abuse. In November 2010, oh, I mentioned this before because I'm going to mention it anyway. Yeah, this is when the um, bruises on Ab- Abigail and that whole thing that precipitated them finally being pulled out of public school. Right. Um, the Hearts began homeschooling, as I've said before, which often consisted of nature trips and music festivals, according to Jennifer Hart's social media posts. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a big part of it, too. There's this big social media presence with all these beautiful photographs. Mm-hmm. Many, I have to like say, yeah. Yeah, with them in all these different beautiful, you know, the Badlands National Park, mm-hmm. Olympic National Park. Um, all kinds of events they went to. They were quite a fixture at some of these. I'll t- kind of tell you what impressions some people had about that. In 2012, according to friends in Oregon, Sarah Hart traveled to Portland on her own to look for work. Uh, Jennifer Hart and the children joined them later. So in April of 2013, uh, the whole family moves uh, to Oregon, to West Lynn, which is basically a suburb of Portland. After the family moves to West Lynn, a family friend, Alexandra Argaropoulos, tells Oregon child welfare officials that the Hart parents have been depriving their kids of food as punishment. Apparently, she was a friend who lived in the Bay Area, and twice they came to visit her around that time. One visit was for two weeks, so she really saw a lot that was going on. The Hearts break off contact with her when they learn of it. Garoppolis says she was told the Hart children had been interviewed by Oregon officials. It was apparent that each child had been coached by their mothers as to what to say. 
and nothing more could be done by the Oregon Department of Human Services. So this is a really kind of crucial oh. thing because there was a big, um, July of 2013, there was a big investigation. It seems to be precipitated by an anonymous call to a child you know, hotline. And that precipitated the investigation. This Alexandra Argaropoulos, I don't know if she's the one who called or whether she was interviewed in the process. She said by that time she'd been cut off because she basically mm. weighed in and said, what are you doing? And she was out of the picture. The, the caller on the child welfare hotline said the heart children appear undernourished and excessively disciplined. The caller notes that the children must get permission before speaking and that they all seem scared to death of Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's an investigation. Ugh. And so uh, one of the things that Alexandra said that happened when they were visiting her, she got everybody pizza. And Jennifer would only let each child eat one tiny piece of pizza for dinner. Uh, the next morning, the leftover pizza was gone. And there was this huge... And Jennifer uh, exploded, accused the children of stealing it. She denied them breakfast and made them lie in bed wearing sleeping masks, arms at their sides for five hours. Oh, my God. Wow. Just Um, like the Turpins, though. Yeah. Doesn't it sound like... Archaeopolis also said that kindness and respect were largely absent in Jennifer's interactions with the children. Her reactions were overblown, the punishment seemingly unnecessarily cruel. Oh, another thing that the report... There was this big 30-page... Department of Human Services report that was the result of this investigation in the summer of 2013. And one of the things they noted was the children were very, very small. Um, and that's really kind of disturbing how this kind of plays out. And I actually read the actual report. There was a news, I think it was K2 News report that actually had embedded the report. Unfortunately, I couldn't download the actual, you couldn't download it anymore. But yeah, I could kind of read it in the little slider thing. <laughs> and uh, so I read the actual report, and it's quite disturbing. You can tell that the DHS investigator is really disturbed and wants to do more and is a bit incredulous. There was a doctor, and I think they may have been, he may have been chosen by the hearts. Apparently, they can do that if they're not. These children were 11. Hannah weighed 50 pounds and stood less than four feet tall, a stature typical oh. of a six year old. Yeah, I was going to say that's about Devante also hand. 11, yeah. stood about four feet two and weighed 57 pounds, the size of a typical eight year old boy. The only Jeremiah actually was on the charts for a normal height and weight for his age. All other five kids were well, but they weren't, he didn't even make the charts. Where was he in the age? range Jeremiah. Well he and he Hannah they were both sixteen oh, okay. when the when the crime happened as okay. I would call it. So they were kinda of in the middle. In this DHS report, each child is like there's a summary about each child and each one. And each one it says the doctor is not concerned, even though the child does not meet the minimal da 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 da. Okay. And you can see the DHS investigator is like another article I read that looked at how could something like this happen? A lawyer who advocates for children who are abused in foster care and adoption, he said there's way too much leeway. He said not just any doctor might be able to spot this kind of deprivation. Right. Well, the other thing is a doctor might be of the opinion that because they were deprived as, as when exactly. they were little, right. yeah. that they wouldn't catch up, although so a lot of times they can. Yeah. Yes. Uh, or at yeah. least, and get, that, even if they're a little bit smaller than normal, right. they will still... Yeah. And that's what Sarah and Jennifer said, right. was that they had all these food issues before we got them, yeah. right. and they had all this deprivation before we got them, and they were always really small. And part of that probably is stereotyping and, based on... And also, is in other things I've read, like that book you're reading, The Death of the Innocent, doctors, in a lot of cases, maybe not so much now that child abuse is so on the forefront, defer to parents and mm-hmm. their opinions. Yeah, yeah. Doctors are busy people. 
And, and he had never so, seen his children before, right. as far as I could tell. So they didn't have, like, a family doctor because they did all this homeopathic stuff, right? And so the one of the things these people said was that and let you, children should, in fact, be checked periodically, you know, to kind of see, is, are they growing the way they should Which be? Which they and, do and, when you have a child and you go and, to your And apparently these up, children weren't. So this doctor, don't. I think it was a one-time thing where he saw these kids. But in any case, I could kind of sense that DHS person doing the report was like, yeah. right. was like frust- very frustrated. So Jennifer and Sarah said the children had issues with food that predated their adoption. The doctor who evaluated the children and quotes expressed no concerns, the report said, in part because Jennifer and Sarah insisted the children had been small their entire lives. During the investigation, a Minnesota how they all were. A Minnesota child welfare worker warned Oregon officials that Jennifer and Sarah had long deflected suspicions by blaming the children for their problems. So back in Minnesota, there was a caseworker who's saying this is the pattern that you're going to see with them. Ugh. Without regular oversight from doctors, teachers, or child welfare workers, the Minnesota worker wrote. The heart children risk falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Still, officials in Oregon were unable to determine whether child abuse or neglect had occurred. The children interviewed independently reported no abuse, one child welfare worker wrote. By all accounts, they've been coached. Uh-huh. A few things else came out of that report that I just picked up on, so I'll just mention a few of those before I move on. Um, one thing that was said was that in all the interactions the authorities had, Jennifer was clearly the dominant person in the relationship. Some of the informants they had in this report, I'm not sure if this woman, Alexandra Argeopoulos, was the only one. It sounds like there was more than one person they talked to. Um, one who said, a female who said that Jennifer was, uh, told her she was obsessed with her and wanted to leave Sarah. Mm. But they said that Sarah was completely under the thumb of Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people when all this began to come out that were just incredulous. People who knew them who, um, and I just have one example that's interesting. Elizabeth and Tyler Boggs run a farm and a pantry. It's called the Good Neighbor Family Pantry. It's a nonprofit where they basically give out produce uh, for poor families. And apparently they met the Hart family, this is in Oregon, because they showed up for free produce. And then the kids started to volunteer there, and they said they had dozens of interactions with the kids, never saw anything that was of concern to them. They basically were saying, couldn't there be some foul play that mm. outside of the mothers? And because there was clearly having a big, this was in April 10th or so, this piece was done. But one of the things I had to laugh at, because it seems to me like knowing what was going on, the Boggs said they never saw any warning signs and thought Jennifer and Sarah Hart were ideal parents. I don't believe that Boggs said of the alleged abuse. I can't think of a single instance where I had any concern. The kids would come here, and there would be thousands of pounds of food all around them, and the children would be eating food constantly. Boggs added, they weren't malnourished. They were super healthy children. And I'm like, you know, maybe maybe they were eating constantly because they were just like starving. And this was a chance for them to actually have some food. I want to say, too, I I was just looking at pictures of of the women uh, line. They're both very attractive women. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, I think probably has a lot to do with some of the leeway that I got, not to not to beauty shame anybody. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that the Minnesota caseworker warned about, she basically said, people have been letting them get away with things because, in her words, she said they look normal. Yeah. And uh, man, I mean, you can read a lot into that. Yeah. But, but they're, meaning, nice, they're when, very nice looking. They're middle class. Mm-hmm. They're college educated. They're white. They're attractive. Yeah. They're all the things that you would not suspect could be um, why horrible, would they be? Yeah. abusive. So, and also back to the people who, oh, we never saw anything. Oh, Normal, regular, everyday people who have a certain type of interaction with other people aren't qualified 
to diagnose psychopaths right, right. and psychopathic behavior. And psychopaths are really good at people seeing a certain side of them. Like the people who are really like at least Jennifer Hart was are also good at putting on a certain public right, face. Right. And she worked very hard at that. Yeah. You know, with that social media presence. Um, one of the things they know in various sources is that all these friends, no one ever went to their house. No one ever saw the inside of their house. Mm. No one ever saw what went on inside their own home. And that is kind of a red yeah, flag. Of um, so, so it's around this time, November 2014 was the protest over the Michael Brown, fatal shooting Michael Brown, where you have the famous photograph you see Devante in tears, be, hugging and being hugged by a Portland cop. Saying to the cop, please take me. <laughs> I know, I know. And that's one of the things people said, you know, you look back at that photograph and you're thinking, right. It means something it. much different now that you have some idea of what was yeah, going on. Right. You know, so they also went to a, a Bernie Sanders rally in of March. Course. 2016, and a big rally in Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the river from Portland, and they actually were called up on the stage and everything, and so, you know, there's all this stuff going on. So, in May of 2017, they move again to Woodland, Washington, and the excuse they gave was that when that photo of Devontae and the cop kind of went viral, they got all this negative. They said they got nice stuff, but they got a lot of negative hate mail and stuff. like. Now, they also said this about being in Alexandria, Minnesota. And I didn't hear if any of that was ever corroborated. They said, like, their house was egged. One of the things they said in that DHS report was that they got all these people making charges against them because people... Uh, were hostile towards the alternative lifestyle and the fact that they were lesbians and that they had all this kind of natural medicine and natural food and all this stuff. And although I couldn't corroborate it when I looked up for this report, I remember reading in the Oregonian that they had said to friends, we're moving to Washington State because we've had all this negative attention and, you know, we were fearful and everything from the, the photograph and we just want to move to a different place. And the Oregonian did not find any evidence that they'd ever made police reports or that they'd right. ever reported getting any kind of harassing or threatening. And so my feeling is it's just another right. excuse and to, also, for another reason to move to a different state where authorities wouldn't where know about the them. Yeah. Well, and also, too, as, a, as somebody who worked for a newspaper, if somebody was saying, oh, we're getting all this negative attention... What we would do at the newspaper is check social media to see what negative attention they were saying, yeah. because this is now 2000. This is 2016. 16, yeah. 17. People aren't mailing them letters. Right, 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 right. It's you all know, online. people yeah. aren't even if depending on how, how private their Facebook page are, isn't even aren't even sending them. People are talking if it's true, are talking about them on social right. media. So as a journalist would check social media right, to see right. what people were saying yeah. about them. And if they couldn't find anything, then you kind of wonder, so what, were they getting letters in the mail? Yeah, I know. You know? I know. So I'm, I'm assuming it's just made up, and, and the, I'm kind of assuming, maybe unfairly, that those stories back in Minnesota of being harassed and threatened were probably bogus as well. Or but, highly exaggerated. Or highly yes. exaggerated. In any case, a good excuse to leave that people wouldn't question, and also puts people in the position of feeling... A little guilty and a little, oh, gee, well, I can understand, yeah, and yeah. not wanting to poke it too much right, or right, ask right, too many right. questions. Exactly, yeah. So May 2017, Jennifer and Sarah Hart buy a two-story, three-bedroom home on two acres of land in the Woolen area of Clark County, Washington. Wow, like, where's their money? That's something that no one has really answered. They did get from Texas. 
They got, um, I think it was a total for all six kids, about $1,900 Wait, did all six yeah. kids come from Texas? All six kids came from Texas. Because even even though they were living in... Yeah, that's yeah, another thing that's that. kind okay. of controversial, and I'll say and a little do, bit about that. I know that people that have adopted children, especially older children, state adoptions, you do get... A you, stipend? You get, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and um, and that we would be getting that till those kids were eighteen. Because when I was when I had first gotten divorced and people knew that I wanted children, somebody who was an advocate for adoption that I knew told me that they said, "Well, you know, if you're worried about about paying, well, the good thing about adopting is I, you know, I have three children that I adopted and I get money for each child." Well, just think to of help with their, you know, it's child support. I, right I understand why it's there, but on the other hand, just think of how it can be abused. Yeah, and the wrong right. people are adopting yes. kids. Well, for even the wrong so, reasons. though, I'm thinking 19. They they test estimate it would have been 1,900 for all six kids a month. And then uh, Jennifer doesn't have a job, and Sarah is like working in retail. I know. She was like a supervisor at Kohl's, which is kind of like a target. You probably yes. would yeah. make at the most maybe fifteen dollars an hour. So I don't. They 15? were they were estranged from their families, so they weren't getting help from them. So I have never had any explanation of how they were able to buy these properties. That's and you look at the pictures of it; it looks like a nice house. So mm. I have no idea. So they packed up and moved again. Soon after, in May 2017, uh, police received a report. Actually, it must have been later. Now that I'm looking at, I get a couple of kind of conflicting reports here. Hannah had jumped out of a second-story window of the house at 1.30 a.m. and appeared at the nearby home of Bruce and Dana DeKalb, covered in weeds and listening to tea. Hannah told the DeKalb that the moms were racist and were abusing her, in quotes, according to a state child welfare report. Although she was 16 at the time, Hannah looked barely 7. Bruce DeKalb said in an interview, he said actually he didn't know. He thought she was 7. She was railed to the bone, he said, and crouched between the bed and the dresser when Sarah and Jennifer came looking for her. Mm-hmm. Months later, Devante showed up, uh, begging for peanut butter, tortillas, and other food. The boy pleaded with the cops not to call the police, saying he feared that he and his siblings would be split up. At one point, too, after one of these incidents, and at some other source that I don't remember, they said that the next day, Jen and Sarah kind of marched the kids over to the DeKalb's with apology notes saying, oh, we just, you know, mm. we're just making all up. We were being brats. And oh, jeez. March, this is kind of getting down to the wire. In March of 2018, after about a dozen visits from Devante, the DeKalb's called the child services. On March 26th, police and social workers knocked on the door of the Hart home. No one answered. The investigation was opened March 23rd. I'm a little confused about the timeline because... It sounds like someone went to the home on March 23rd to try and talk to them. There were three separate attempts between the 23rd and the 27th where they tried to contact the family. This time, the first time, the SUV was in the driveway. But no, there was no sign of any activity in the house. No one came to the door, whether it was child welfare person or whatever, who showed up, went around to the back, you know, knocked on the back door, and I think hmm. no one answered. On March 24th, 2018, Sarah Hart sends a 3 a.m. text message to a friend who's named Cheryl Hart, no, no relation, mm-hmm. I believe, saying she's so sick she might have, she won't be able to be, go to work and may ha- might have to go to the hospital. The friend never hears from Sarah again. That's the 24th of March. That same day, the family is seen in or around Newport, Oregon, around 8:14 a.m. They continue south on Route 101 until they re- reach State Route 1 in Leggett, California. Um, they travel south on Route 1. There is actually a surveillance film in um, some sort of convenience store where they think it's Sarah Hart. And they're in Mendocino, the area uh, of Mendocino, around 8 p.m. They know that the family stays there until about 9 p.m. March 25, 2018. Uh, on the 26th, 
2018, remember, that's the day that they find the, the person who spots the SUV at the bottom of the cliff. Cheryl Hart calls the Clark County Emergency Dispatcher at 1.15 p.m. asking the Clark County Sheriff's Office to do a welfare check at the family's Washington home. They, I guess they try, and then the Department of Social and Health Services again tries to contact. The last time they, they try on the 27th, of course, they're, they've been dead for who knows how many yeah. times. So that's the kind of rundown of what happened. Just a few of the issues that came up in my going over all of this is like the, the problems with the adoption system. And one of the things is the, uh, I just want to talk just a little bit about the biological family of Devante, Sierra, and Jeremiah. Their aunt had actually had custody of them. Their mother had lost custody because of drug abuse. Everyone agrees that it was right that she lost custody of the children. Their aunt, Priscilla Celestine, was uh, taking care of them. She was a stable job. Apparently everything was well, but she was not supposed to let the children see the mother. And whether she didn't quite understand that or whether she had a job, apparently something happened. She had to get to her work. She asked the mom to come over and watch the kids for a couple hours. You know, while she finished That's up work and yeah, got back, and a child welfare worker came by, the children were immediately removed from the home. Yeah. The thing that the... See, funny how fast the kids were removed from that home. Well, that's just I it. The, the, uh, the lawyer for the Philistine family is like, the children were immediately whisked away. Priscilla Celestine and her husband repeatedly petitioned the court to get the children back, and they were actually rushed into adoption. Um, they were they, they, they were dismissed yeah. by the court, and it was that one thing. You know, the you know the, the lawyer is like, okay, maybe it was unwise for her to let her, but that was like one incident right. when everything had been going great for the kids. You're going to break up a biological family yeah, over that right. one thing. Well, and it, that reminds of, me of Logan Mars, yes. our yes. that episode. The thing that bothers me about these kind of situations, even if they put them in foster care for a period of time, that's fine. But to make them available to be adopted yeah. permanently by somebody it was within, who's not family, it was like and they've done that, them being that removed from the home. somebody yeah. who's not only not family, but from a thousand miles away of a different race yeah, who the kids right. have no connection right, with and right. don't know. Right, yeah. And so, so that's a big, big part. Another part of it is on the Minnesota. Side, which has pretty stringent state regulations and everything about adoption, but apparently the small adoption agency that was handling these these adoptions uh, just a couple months after the Hertz finalized that last adoption of Devante, Sarah, and Jeremiah, they came under scrutiny, the adoption agency, for cutting corners. So there are various sources I've seen that said on the Texas side, you had a system where they were actually fast-tracking adoptions, particularly of minority children. Yeah. Um, and states apparently get more money from the federal government the more quickly... They get children out of foster care into adoption. Mm-hmm. And because so then the state doesn't have to pay for the kids right, anymore. Right. And, then right. the, and then on the Minnesota side, you have this kind of dicey small adoption company that's not really doing due diligence. And it was finally shut down in 2012, but it was actually under sanction within a couple months of the Hertz finalizing their last adoption for various violations of state regulations. So how how does it work? Somebody in Minnesota wants to adopt a kid, and there's like a nationwide clearinghouse, and oh, we have three black kids in Texas. Boom. Well, apparently the out-of-state adoptions are one of the things that this adoption agency got in trouble for because they are seen as more problematic, and they're seen as something that shouldn't be kind of pursued aggressively and should be avoided at all possible. It would be better to adopt the children are going to be adopted within state. And apparently one of the 
things. But that I'm sure the adoption state agency likes to get rid of them. Sure, yeah. I know. But, but this adoption agency in Minnesota, remember the adoption agencies in Minnesota, yeah. apparently what they're doing is they're going to whatever state wants to get rid of their black kids as quick as possible, and Texas is happy to oblige, and they're cutting a lot of corners and, and everything. So, and like so, overseas yeah. adoption. Right, and too. so were both sets of the Hearts kids, was that through the same adoption agency? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Through the same adoption agency, Ooh. yeah, and yeah. I think different county judges in Texas who made these rulings allowed them to be adopted. And I know much less about the first three, but there's this been that several sources went into detail. Washington Post did its big thing about the Celestine family and their efforts to try and get. Um, there's this one thing I wanted to mention too. It's a little bit eerie, but maybe maybe a little oh, too trite. And this Washington Post article talks about these friends who just can't believe. You know, the, the, and they show us all these videos of the kids dancing at music festivals oh, and everything. Yeah. And he said uh, that one of the things some people have mentioned is that there's uh, there's a song called Mr. Washington from a group called NACO, or Medicine for the People or NACO. I don't know. I've never heard of them. And it says, in the context of the Heart's Last Moments, however, the song's opening lyrics read like despair. Me and Mr. Washington go forth with no real direction, dreaming of the day we drive our cars into the ocean. Oh, and all wow. the people looking on will wonder what to say and live confused about us till the day they do the same and they will see while swimming that they are free. Mm, now, is that a song the Heart's will new or like yes that was apparently like jennifer's like one of her favorite songs so um just a couple of other things i mentioned a lot of stuff about the problems with adoption Um, one of the things that the hearts did was you know the multiple uh, the moving frequently the pulling out there was a whole article i read about the particular problems with homeschool children not to say that it's not that homeschooling isn't okay but it is a much more problematic and there are a number of in oregon there are a number of famous cases of horrific abuse of homeschool children and one of the reasons why the abuse went to Yes. Got to the extent it was was because there was no. Well, that's right. what we talked about with the turf. With the turf, it's not that someone homeschooling is more likely to abuse, but an abusive, controlling person, they can use that to mask. Right, right. Family. Because the teachers and people who are supposed to report aren't there to do it, no. and a lot of the normal checks you have on a kid aren't done. Well, one of the things is the Hearts never registered the kids as being homeschooled mm-hmm. in any of the states where they did it and when they started doing it in Minnesota, in Oregon, and Washington, and there's very little mechanism to force people to do that. And even people who are advocates, homeschool advocates, say it's, they, it's quite common for people to not do it. They said most people just do it as an oversight. They just right. don't realize. But I'm sure they were, you know, it was, it was a way of kind of being under the radar yeah. and, yeah. and kind of having the authorities off your psycho who's right. probably paranoid. Right. Because the other thing is, aside from being able to be off the radar and everything, there's also that attitude that no one's going to tell me how to raise my kids or how to teach my kids or what to do with my kids. And I don't want people interfering with me and my kids. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So that one, that woman Alexandra Argiopoulos, who's that friend who gave all that information about the abuse, is trying to get a petition to to get a nationwide registry for child abuse mm-hmm. and child welfare reports because she said that's part of the problem. And in fact, they they mentioned that in the Oregon Department of Health Services, they cannot actually demand like state of Minnesota, hey, we want to see all the possible oh, criminal wow. records or anything. We want to see the child any reports that you have on this family. They actually can't do it. 
they they and if they have very specific charges yeah, yeah yeah and so she said it's a real problem so that's one of the problems another issue we're probably running out, we're running out of time no right? we're not we've no. got all the time in the world don't worry well I was gonna say it's just interesting the whole phenomenon of family annihilators is interesting mm, I yes. found a couple of things. An Oregonian, a couple of things that were referenced uh, this specifically, and um, one was a woman who's a psychologist who is interested in these cases. Is it she, Laura? Is it Laura Richards? Um, no. She, um, yeah, I don't see where I have the the reference to it, but I can give it to you if you want to post it. Yeah, yeah. But sure. she she does cases. She looks. Oh, here it is. It's called CriminalCode.com. The CriminalCode.com, and she actually she's like, I want to understand these kinds of crimes better to help. Just like Laura. Yeah. Wow. And I don't remember her name. I'm uh, sorry to say. But now she is that a website? It's or? a website. Yeah. Okay. And she does this like just this one page brief kind of thing. And she said most family annihilators are men. They mm-hmm. usually use a gun. So she said in those ways this is different. And she said, you know, let's just say maybe there's a small possibility it was an accident, the drunkenness, for instance. You know, possibly, you know, yeah. wasn't really, you know, I think it's unlikely, but, you know, it's one possible scenario, though I think the authorities are basically treating it as a deliberate yeah. um, murder, suicide. Yeah. And, but she said there are all kinds of other things um, that are, she said sometimes, not always, but she said often, there's a pattern of abuse, spousal abuse as well as child abuse. Mm-hmm. She said there's this feeling that children are just extensions. Yeah. Of the person, yeah. right. and so they have to present this perfect and there's obviously facade. And she said, if anything is going to threaten that facade of the perfect family, yeah. it's seen as kind of attack on the inner core of that person, and they have to eliminate the family yeah. because they become then a problem. And so she kind of gets into a lot of interesting things like that. And she said, it sounds like Jennifer Hurt has some of the kind of classic tendencies. Well, of part her. of it is yeah, narcissism and control issues, and even people who, like you said aren't abusers in the technical sense or in the sense where they're beating them, they probably have control issues. Yeah. Or at least a sense of narcissism and entitlement that, you know, I want to change my life, so I'm gonna just going to get rid of all this stuff that's yeah. causing my life to not be what I want, like, because I got a hot new girlfriend, right, right, and, right. and I don't want this nagging ex-wife and brats in the way. Right. Like, well, Mr. And people yeah. have trouble... Normal people, who don't have a lot of imagination, I guess, have trouble understanding. Watch, they killed the kids because of blah, blah, blah. They did this. They killed their whole family. They wouldn't have killed their whole family because of that. And what they don't understand is how somebody like that thinks. Yeah. You can't make the mistake, and we say all the time, of thinking that people who do things like that think the same way you right, are. Right. And I'm sure Jennifer Hart, because... From from everything you said, she seen Sarah Hart seems what well, probably as abused as the kids. Yeah, yeah. she was submissive, but she probably felt like very threatened, and that it's better to kill the entire family, including herself, than to be unmasked right, or right. to have the kids taken away. Even though she didn't particularly have any love for the kids, yeah, yeah. it's not that, oh, I don't want my kids taken away because I can't live without Well, they're an extension kids. of herself, yeah, right? Yeah. And, well, I'm thinking, too, well, they're getting older. Marcus was 19. I know. And I know. so, and, and I'm oh. thinking how everything seemed oh, to be getting more desperate. Me. When they, they were younger, younger they yes. couldn't, like, jump out of the second floor window and run to a neighbor. Oh, they're yeah. getting to the point where they're going to... She and, couldn't and, and control... And so she couldn't control it anymore. So it was... It was like it was, all, even, yeah. it was all, here's yet again, they're being investigated. Now the kids are a lot older. You know, it's all spinning out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I hate to think of that day, that day, 
in that house. I can, I, yeah. I, this is kind of what haunts me is that there they were clearly at home. So I can see them all in that house. And I'm just thinking, like, like that time mom had us hide from the fuller brush. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, when someone's knocking at the door. Right. And it's like, and the poor kids are probably thinking, hey, maybe we're going to get saved now because they're old enough to kind of right. think like that, yeah. obviously. They knew the way they were. Oh, anyways, the whole thing is just. Two, it's sad. And I know oh, social service agencies are overburdened and everything, but it's sad the amount of complaints, mm-hmm. the amount of red flags. And they were just allowed. People apparently said, oh, okay. Well, some of the comments they saw in some news articles, well, it was all very PC and because they were lesbian, they didn't dare. And I said, it wasn't because they were bullshit. lesbian. It's because bullshit. they were white and middle class. Right. It, was. it wasn't also, like... maybe good-looking women. Right. You know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like people were afraid to make waves with them because they were lesbians and it were they being were PC, PC yeah. because people... They, uh, for all this, like, bullshit about p- what's PC and what isn't, people have no issue crapping on minorities, crapping on LGBT. And people have no problem doing that. They were getting away with it, not because people didn't want to make waves, but they were because they were two good-looking white women who people just naturally believed. And, oh, look at this wonderful thing, taking in these right. little black kids. And I think they, made, they presented yeah. themselves very well. Yeah, you know? and they were good-looking. And I, and I know that the fact that they were white counted more than that. But as we know, people who are attractive, you know, it's and the whole Ted Bundy I, phenomenon, right? Yeah. yeah, I'm not making this people up. Aren't, you know, it's true. It's people are more willing to to give leeway to an attractive person it's true. if they if they both were were very unattractive in one way or another and still white. They may have gotten less. Mm-hmm. We did the um, episode on Logan Marr at that time. The state of Maine had been. They used to focus on trying to keep the kids with their family, and then they were switching away to that and giving them to other people, and that's what happened. She was taken away from her mother. Blah blah blah. Put on oh, a fast yeah, track. Right. Very similar. Now after that happened, they were kind of going back to right. let's put them with family. Well, now I'm going to be doing a show coming up on two little girls that were both with family. There have been a lot of red flags with these two girls, but they, one of the thing is they were left with their family because the state's like, well, we want to try to keep families together. To me, it's not either or. It's each individual case is important, but right. we just don't. Our society doesn't put enough, and I know I sound like I'm like, no, say it. it's not a priority to it's protect underfunded. children. Yeah. It's never funded correctly. These caseworkers have huge caseworkers. And what I was going to say, right, and what I was going to say, too, is it isn't taken seriously. It's the first thing that goes in budgets. But also, because of that, the whole superficial, we have to keep kids with families, we have to take kids out of families, is more, becomes a bigger issue because nobody has the time or the, the, the wherewithal to or the motivation to look at each one but i felt like with the logan mar case i think it was episode 25 but i'm mm-hmm. not sure she was not given half the leeway and credit the mother, that yeah. her the mother wasn't as and hard was as she was trying as, well. as the woman who adopted her who ended up killing the poor child was yeah another. and that was a class thing as well yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah these cases are just so depressing because it's just things like this just that keep happening and it's not it's a preventable tragedy and you think about these poor kids their lives have sucked and then they get killed at least the ones that we know about you know their mother 
had issues, but then their aunt and uncle were fine. Yeah, they were they and, yeah, were in a stable, and loving is, situation. Don't, don't make rules like that. That's what happened with Logan Mar, where where the the um, stepfather, whoever, the family member that wasn't supposed to be near kids, unknown to the child's mother, was with her, and immediately she was taken away. Right. Immediately. Immediately, and that's a point. And that happened. A I remember times. the point I wanted to make. It happened with the caretakers of Devante. And Jeremiah and Sierra. Sarah yeah. is poverty. Play uh, people are taking care of the kids and they're fine, but poverty has an effect. And in Logan Mars' case, she it was have, she didn't have a car. She, she didn't, didn't have, have a car, yet. and it's Maine, so you have to have one. In their case, she needed someone to watch the kids while she was at work. Who better to watch them than their mother? Right, right, you know? right. And it's not like the mother was... She, had to, get, she had to work. You right. Know? She would have gotten fired. And, and, they would have and so there's this really superficial thing. Take the kids away from the impoverished people and give them to somebody with some wherewithal and pay the people with some wherewithal. How about taking that 1900 bucks a month and giving it to the aunt to take right, care exactly. of the kids. Right, right. And, exactly. Yeah. Right. And the other thing, too, is the very superficial impression, aside from race, but the class thing, that if you're more well-off, although, again, it's hard to figure out how the heart women yeah, wear their money, yeah, the whole that thing somehow that. you're just better for kids. Right, right. But I think if you asked the kids, do you want to stay with your family and be poor, or live with these people you don't know, somewhere you don't know, who are going to abuse you and mistreat you. And apparently it didn't matter that they had money because they weren't feeding the kids. But I was going to say, like the I don't think they had money. I don't know how they were I said before places. that, I've said this in another show, that when I used to volunteer at uh, Maine Youth Center, which is called something else now, but it was the prison. Long Creek. Long Creek. Youth, Youth Development, Development Center. These kids that I volunteered with were young teens, pre-tweens and teens. They always wanted to be with their parents, always, no matter how they had been. They were hoping, a lot of them had been in foster care and had run away, and that's why they were in the, which was dumb, but that's why they were in there. Or something else had happened, and they weren't, a lot of times they were not, their parents were not in the picture, and that's all they wanted, no matter how bad an outsider looking in would think their parents were, they still want to be with them. And I always feel like, and I know I sound like a Pollyanna or people are going to be, you know, bleeding heart. Who cares what people think? But I always, the society would be better served if we could somehow help the parents if they need help learning how to deal with things, if they need to be in rehab, if they need help, then help keep the family together if that's what everybody wants. Right, if the issue is an issue of their poverty or resources or because they don't have a support system or something the money's better spent helping keep the kids with the parents obviously you don't want to keep kids with parents who are abusive yes. or neglecting them yes. but there's a big gap and it's just the fact that they're poor and they have to work so they left their kid at mcdonald's play center for five hours yeah you know but and also a totally different topic the family annihilators you feel like it's not taken as seriously if somebody went into the school 
and killed six random kids, it's much more... What am I trying It's to... more... People are going to be more shocked, maybe? Yes. Or, or it's more of a, yeah. wow, on oh hand, my God, well, this no, On one hand, you have people saying, oh, how can people kill their own kids? But on the other hand, it's almost not considered as much of a crime in a way. One of the things that woman says, actually, this just strikes me. Again, I I, I, I didn't have my um, laptop right here in Sorry. front of me. But she, she mentions, actually, that what people don't realize is that most mass killings are, in fact, these family mm-hmm. massacres. Mm. That um, yeah. statistically, you know, people don't really think of them in the same way, right? No, so they they're don't. not necessarily. So there was these kind of random mass shootings or mass killings. But she said, actually, most mass killings are actually family and also type, I would say thing. that when you look at a lot of these mass shooters they start with their they family. start with their yeah, like Charles think, Whitman you know yeah. the Texas Whitman Tower did the um, Adam Lanza, Adam Lanza, Lanza killed his mother. mother most of the time they'll kill they yeah, kill the people close to them and then they and go they, and, and then they some. yeah and then they're, it's not enough so they have to oh. But anyway, thank you. Well, that thank was a, you. Yeah, very I enjoyed good. it. So it was a very grim and sad. Well, well they all are, are. You know, uh, that's what. But we it was do. interesting. It was okay. interesting. And now we have some recommendations. Okay, so we have our recommendations. And I'm going to go first, because okay. I said so. You know how last week you had a show that it wasn't your total oh, recommendation? That yeah, that, that the you... The Hunt by jo- with John. Right, that's, that's bad, but you, that you have to watch it. Yes. That's what I feel about The Investigator. Ah, yes, I've watched it. And that. I watched the first season, and I don't remember a lot about it. So this review is based on the three episodes of the second season. And the premise is it's a British true crime reality, in quotes, very heavy <laughs> quotes, show. <laughs> An investigator, Mark Williams Thomas, he's got like three first names kind of guy, hyphenated last name, Thomas Williams, or Williams, is ostensibly investigating a crime. In this case, the disappearance 40 years ago of a young woman, a beachy head. Beachy head. <laughs> I'll just get right into the review. Bad reenactment. Yes, there are many, many reenactments. And the thing about this is something by its nature, just because it's a reenactment doesn't mean it's bad. But when you overdo it, instead of it means you don't have the photos and the interviews and the things that you need to really tell the story. And this, because it takes place in the 70s and 80s, they're wearing like 70s and 80s kind of clothes and everything. Although I'll say those aren't bad, because I've seen it too. And yeah, and it... The it, clothing isn't bad, it's just the... Yeah. They do a good job of the period clothing, yeah. but they still have a lot of bad reenactments. Yeah. So I'm taking away a point for the reenactments. Narrative cliches, actually, I want to say there aren't that many... The racial gender obtuseness, no, there are, there's only one race so far on this show. It's the white one. And there's no gender obtuseness. Lack of good visuals, I'm taking away half a point because they show the same photos over and over and over again. I understand, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, you're not going to have a lot of fo- the photos of people you do now when everybody's taking selfies and on social media. But, there's also a lack of visuals. I mean, they could show other things, too. If photos from the time. Every once in a while, you see a crime scene photo from the time, and it's like, okay, wow, cool. And that's about it. Missing pieces, so many. <laughs> so many missing pieces. I'm taking away a point. There's just giant, giant holes. Inaccuracies and anachronisms. And not really. 
I mean, I don't know what's inaccurate because I, you know, I'm not that familiar with these cases. Anachronisms, no, except for the fact that in this entire time, these crimes took place that he's looking into in the late 70s, and nobody says, you know, it was 40 years ago. I really don't know. People talk about it like it was yesterday. Like, was this the man you saw as you sat in your car on that rainy night? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, nobody says, well, gee, you know, it was 1978, and now it's 2017 or 16 or whenever the show was. So I'm not really sure about you. So um, <laughs> storytelling. Here's where we get to the big, if I could take away more than one point, <laughs> I would. First of all, maybe this guy really is investigating these crimes, but it, what he's really doing is, I feel like watching, when I'm watching it, is he's going over what police have already gone over and acting as if they're new revelations yeah. to him. It's funny because I've discovered blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out when police interviewed him about this in 1979, it was blah, blah, blah. And so it's like, oh, wait, you didn't discover it. Police discovered it. One of the big issues I have in the second season is he he's looking into what happened to this girl and concludes that she may be a victim of the serial killer Peter Tobin, who I saw another documentary about and is interesting. But then he kind of gets off. He goes to Glasgow and gets off on this track. These other three girls that he thought in 1978 may have been killed by this guy. But then it turns out they were killed by Angus. Angus. Right. But, but, and then there's a fourth one that was a few weeks before these ones that all of a sudden he mentions. But, yeah. Somebody else was arrested. And the guy who was arrested was a serial rapist the cops didn't like. They found the woman's compact and three buttons from their coat hidden in his house. That was the totality of the evidence. The M.O. was exactly the same. She was tied exactly the same. Everything was exactly the same as the ones Angus Sebastian, I, I think his name Angus was. Young because... Um, <laughs> I can't want to say Angus DC. King. <laughs> Angus King, our senator. But, I, and I think it's a case where they liked this uh, serial rapist for it because they couldn't figure it out. And it's not beyond the realm of possibility that they planted this evidence. So he appealed saying the evidence had been planted. And so... Our intrepid investigator asks, 40 years later, the cop in charge of the case, if the evidence was planted, and the guy says, no, we wouldn't do that. And so instead of our investigator saying, okay, he says they didn't, but maybe they could have because it's more likely that Angus killed this woman, he decides, you think he decides, that the serial rapist and Angus were co-offenders together. And so he finds other cases where Angus got his brothers-in-law to do mm, crimes. Yeah. So the fact that he convinced other guys to do crimes means he got the serial rapist to kill these women. And I don't know, I'm not an investigator, but these crimes look like the kind of ones that were committed by one guy. And to me, it's more likely that police planted a compact and three buttons. Yeah, yeah. It's not like it's her bloody handkerchief, yeah, right? you know? Right, right. It's more likely that police planted that evidence because they figured this guy did it and liked this guy and Angus wasn't on the radar. Yeah. Angus wasn't arrested t- till DNA came around. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Yeah. And huh. so he goes on this big, I think it's almost the whole third episode of trying to tie Angus and this guy yeah, together. Yeah, so it was very it And was it's boring. totally, and it's just wrong. And it's, maybe it's because he's a cop and he's not going to say, but 
we all know of zillions of cases where cops thought they had the right guy and didn't have any evidence, especially in the 70s when there wasn't DNA testing and all that. So the storytelling is a very large minus one. The other thing about the storytelling, actually, I'll get to that in repetition. Freshness, I had heard of Peter Tobin. I hadn't heard of Angus Sebastian, I think his name is. And so I will say it's fresh, but the way it's done isn't fresh. I feel like he's taking something that's already been investigated and uh, he's almost an actor. And he has, yeah, he's has, he has those fake phone calls like, yes. blah, 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 like, blah. and I like his two assistants. One of them's standing there with a notebook, like writing down what he's saying, and the other one's kind of standing there looking at like, am I supposed to be acting <laughs> like I'm right? You know, yeah, I hate that whole where they act out finding out information or calling people. And oh, so I'm taking 0.5 away for freshness. Repetition. Oh my God. The repetition. And here's one little example when he's still on the Peter (laughs) Tobin thing. He he quote unquote finds out because it turns out the cops found this out. Just like the cops investigated the serial rapist Angus Sebastian ties apparently decades ago. You find out, you get little hints of as this goes along. He didn't figure it out himself. (laughs) The, The cops looked into that. But he finds out that Peter Tobin the serial killer, who's like one of Britain's no, most notorious serial killers, serial killers, worked for an auto auction company and was driving cars around. Yeah. And might have been in Beachy Head or whatever it is. It's the same time this girl, where? South, East, South East, coast of England, yeah, yeah, somewhere. Um, when the, right, when this girl disappeared. And so this old Scottish, and what I love are the Scottish accents. Yeah. And, those, and so the old Scottish guy says to him, yeah, he, so he had a car and he was, and I can't do a brogue, and he was, and so then, Peter says, so, are you saying he had a car? And he could have been in the same area? And the guy's like, yeah, he had a car. And he was in the same area. So we're learning he had a car. And he was in the same area. And then uh, a few minutes later, he, he does that kind of torture. They do this more on British shows where he's talking kind of to the camera, but looking a little off like he's talking to somebody right next to the camera. And it's this very tortured. So I've learned now. That he had a car, and he was in the same area at the time yeah. as as Louise K disappeared, and uh, and so you, he just repeats the same information oh, yeah. over and over and over and, and over. Part over. of it is that as I'm sure in the original show there there were probably commercial breaks. Yeah. But even with that, even with that, no, because he's repeating it like somebody will tell him something, and he'll repeat what the person said, <laughs> yes, and then yes, he'll say it again, yes. and then he'll say it again, and then he'll say it again, and it's yes. it's just constant. So that's a big minus one there. Beating the drum, he, not really, not in the sense that we do it, but he does use a lot of that kind of semi-hysterical. These young girls were just going off for a night of. Drinks with the depravity and debauchery. Yes. <laughs> so I'm sorry I didn't write down my point takeaways, but it's at least um, five. So, been ta- so it's a, like a five. And I want to say about that with that. Too, and I don't remember much about the first. Season, I had but. never heard a small camper being called a caravanette, but I heard they have different names for things over there. I know they call. I've heard them called caravan caravans, but this I've never is heard a, but this a caravanette. Like, well, it's like a microbus. Understand that, but I'm saying I heard that word Caravanette. about 50 million times in that episode. Right. Every single person would be like, "Well, the caravanette was here," and then the caravanette. They could never call it like the the van. Out the van. It right. was always the caravanette. The <laughs> and do you recognize this caravanette? Yes, that's the caravanette. I was right. So this guy, 40 years before, 
was driving behind a caravanette <laughs> that he thought was a VW, but it was a Toyota, and it had the same some similarities to his father's license plate. So he remembered the license. But but obviously he was interviewed by the police at that time, and that's why he remembers. But again, nobody says. And then. Peter shows him a photo. Could this have been the caravanette? <laughs> yes, that is the caravanette. Even though he was behind it in the rain and only saw the rear of it. Like 40 was, years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, but okay. I did watch the I, whole I did. I thing. It. It's very, and I like the Scottish Groves very I much. I like listening to them. Yes. I like the way they say we, you know, a we, they were just having a wee yeah, drink. Yeah, and, they were having a wee drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah stuff like that. Okay. So, so what's yours, Becky? Oh, what about this? What's well, the total? Well, we're going, it was uh, five. Oh, five. They got, a, okay. I think, a five. Around a five because yeah. I wasn't keeping good Okay. Track. Liz goes last because she presented. All right. So I am doing a podcast. Um, I'm gonna yeah, do, we're all doing a podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, my podcast, I'm actually doing the overall podcast because season two only has three. Unfortunately, there's only three episodes out so far. I'm doing Slow Burn. Oh, yeah. Have you Slow Burn. listened oh, to that? Yeah. Oh, my God. You should listen it's to it. It's very good. The first season is about Watergate. Watergate. The second season is now only three episodes in at the time of our recording and is about the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And it's excellent. I'm going to talk about them both um, as I go down the list. Bad reenactments. No. No. Because there's no reenactments. Narrative cliches. I'm going to take off half a point. When I first went through our list to myself, it was a perfect score. And I'm like, nah. Narrative cliches. What I'm going to take a half a point off is... The narrator of both of these seasons is a young man. He's probably early 30s. Leon Nafak. But it's put on by Slate, which is also an online magazine. I'm taking away half a point because he does that thing that bugs the crap out of me where, well, I didn't know this, and I had never heard of this. And it's like, you know what? I don't fucking give a shit whether you heard of it or not. <laughs> like with the Monica Lewinsky, well, I didn't really know much about her or who she was. And it's like, that's because you're friggin' 30, but a lot of us do know all about it. <laughs> so it I just seems unnecessary. So I'm taking half a point off that. And I don't know if that's a narrative cliche or not, but... That's what I'm saying. Lack of good visuals, obviously not. It doesn't matter. Uh, but they do have some good audio clips. Missing pieces? So far, no. I'll go into it with more with the storytelling because the um, Watergate one focused on things that weren't stuff that we already knew. And so you could technically say there were missing pieces because you didn't know what the whole overall story was but that wasn't the point of that season so inaccuracy and acronism no it's very very well researched storytelling is excellent especially the first season the first season of slow burn is about the watergate scandal but it focuses on storylines and people that were not major to the story but it's still a very just, it adds. It adds so much. Yeah. Right. He does tell the story of Watergate along with telling these people's stories, but he really focuses on, like... Well, Martha Mitchell. Martha Mitchell. Who, if you're around then, yeah. you knew They basically them. held her prisoner so yeah. she wouldn't talk. That couple that were... That couple of young lawyers. Yes, who, who were... And it just it's just really good. Right. Freshness, yes, especially season one, because although we all... A certain age knows about Watergate, like I said, he talked about things. With the... Um, the Lewinsky story, too, is very fresh because even though a lot of us of our generation and older obviously know a lot about the story, it hasn't really been in this depth 
since right. back then. And even back then, things were not explained. As no. He's explaining them. Repetition, no. Beating the drum, no. He doesn't beat a drum. He's very good about just presenting the facts. He does kind of, he, he does have opinions. Linda Tripp is, um, he obviously thinks she's a villain. And she, as she was. <laughs> yeah. So with the Lewinsky one is so far excellent. Yes. He explains yes. the Whitewater scandal really well. Because I cause finally never explained it very well. And the whole and he's explaining what he's doing is in the beginning he's talks about Monica Lewinsky and it really even at the time I had sympathy for yeah, the poor young woman she was treated like shit yep. she still has been even women there were certain women who were supposedly I don't want to say Gloria Steinem because I don't know if she was one of them but that ilk that are the, kind of the older yeah, feminists yeah, yeah. but still put her in the trash can yeah. and were derisive of her. The FBI grabbed her. She was in a hotel room for 11 hours being interrogated without a lawyer. They told her, well, she could have left, but she's a 24-year-old young woman. And she called her mother, and her mother came from New York, came on the train. Her mother should have told her to get a freaking lawyer, too, and didn't. To her credit, she would not say anything about Clinton and she would not agree to wearing a wire. She tried to contact Betty Curry, who was Clinton's secretary, so he would be, because he was being deposed the next day Mm. and she knew he was going to say they weren't having an affair. But Linda Tripp had these tapes and knew. So far, am I Am I right to revile the very name of Linda Tripp? Yeah. She always seemed like the worst sort of conniving. And I kind of can understand if she felt like, well, the president's doing something wrong. You know, so far, it's been, even though I know the story, it's still like, wow. It also had one of the best explanations of what happened with Vince Foster, who if you listen to some people of a certain political ill Hillary Clinton murdered, the way he explains everything that happened around that is just so enlightening. So I'm looking forward to episode four because it's going to talk about how Monica and Bill met. I think in a way both of these scandals seem almost quaint compared to what's going on now. Mm -hmm. And, And the fact that I'm not, and I'm not diminishing, I think Bill Clinton was a serial philanderer and was inappropriately pursuing women Mm -hmm. although I don't know like the one thing that I thought was interesting was with Paula Jones she said when she told her story to the Washington Post reporter who they interviewed and this guy interviews everybody in it and they are I mean, it's amazing the amount of information he has to back up this podcast. But the Washington Post reporter said that Paula Jones, Bill Clinton wanted her to give him a blowjob, basically. She said no. And he said, well, I don't want to make you do anything you don't want to do. And so she said, oh, that's probably what I'm going to get him off that he said that or something like that. So the fact that he did say that. At least it's a little bit to his credit, but I still think he has a sleaze bag. I, I liked him as a president and he's a person, you know, he's got, you know, he, different He wasn't different impeached aspects. for his philandering. He was impeached, supposedly, supposedly for lying to a but grand jury him about whether lying. he had an affair, but it's not I illegal. Was, I think he was really impeached because he was a Democrat. Uh, that's what I was, that's, that's what I was getting <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they trapped him into lying. Yes. Which sounds stupid. Like this guy I, <laughs> this guy I used to work with who was a security guard at night said, I was set up because someone told his boss, hey, that guy's sleeping on the job and his boss went and saw him sleeping. I mean, 
<laughs> that's not really being set up. He, you're being caught. So yes. But so I gave it a nine and a half. I agree with that. Yeah. And I will. I, love it. I will highly recommend it. Yeah. The Watergate one, I think anybody should listen to. And I think, you know, history classes should have kids listen to it. So next, Liz. So I'm going to read a famous, I guess you'd call a lead to a news story that may bring up memories for some people. Um, And then I'll just talk a little bit how this is uh, related to what I'm uh, reviewing. So this is a news... You know, you're kind of raising the bar for our reviews a little higher. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, well, it's just so grippy. No, come yeah. on. No, and, no, and, no, most of, and most... Yeah, in case you and many people... No, I have it. She actually oh. has notes. Um, the, uh, yeah, oh, I have notes. Yeah. Sometimes I have notes. This may strike a bell um, with many people, even people who are much too young, because this appeared in the New York Times in March of 1964. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watch a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned. The police during the assault. One witness witness called after the woman was dead. That story was about the case of the murder of Kitty Genovese. Uh, I should say Genovese, all the people in the documentary I watched. You know, the Italian yes. way is Genovese. Yeah. I've always said it Genovese, but it's actually Genovese. They're, everyone's York American. They're Italian-Americans. This case kind of struck a bell on this vision of the apathetic, indifferent, particularly big city, that kind of the cruel, indifferent big city, and the apathetic people who would watch... Uh, a woman get brutally murdered in their own neighborhood over the course of half an hour um just kind of you know had this incredible response and it became kind of this iconic case that has been the basis of sociological studies there are even theories called um observer what is it called something like observer syndrome or you know there are all these psychology theories about it and so that's why even people who are really young maybe come across this in textbooks it's been used as a kind of uh morality tale in a way, a modern morality tale. And this documentary is called The Witness. It came out a couple of years ago. It's won a lot of awards. It got critical acclaim, deservedly so, I think. And um, you can get it. You can stream it on pretty much. I streamed it's on it. Netflix. It's, on yeah, it's on Netflix. It's on iTunes. It's a cheap rental. You know, it's not like expensive to rent. Oh, it's readily available. And it was James D. Solomon, who is apparently a screenwriter. I'm not sure what he wrote, but he's a screenwriter. And this is his first movie that he directed. And it really focuses on the younger brother of Kitty Genovese, Bill Genovese. And it's sort of his search for what really happened. And so I'll go over the criteria and kind of fill in just a little bit. So the whole premise is that he's looking at that vision of the crime that killed his sister and the account it you know basically starts with the systematically going through that account of the murder that appeared in the New York Times and basically finds that most of that account that description is either false or wildly exaggerated the whole scenario played out quite differently and he's obsessed and the the movie is as much about his own obsession with the crime that killed his sister how it devastated his family and kind of coming to some sort of peace and trying to kind of go back over it it happens over many years so bad reenactments um there's aren't really any reenactments in this that's good there is however one scene towards the end where it's sort of 
uh, reenactment. Um, and I'm not going to get into the details of it. He basically hires an actress to kind of walk through the thing that happened right in the same neighborhood. And he kind of says, I think he, he's basically in the film saying, I want to do this to sort of see who could have really heard her screaming and everything. I think it's more for his own like psychologically, like he has to somehow go through yeah. the murder with his sister or something. Yeah. And it's quite yeah. harrowing. It There's is. nothing graphic about no. it or anything, but it is harrowing to watch and see because he's sitting there and um, while it's going on. But there aren't reenactments in the sense that would usually have in these true crime, you know, so yeah. it's not really relevant. And I think this is a kind of climax of the film and people can kind of think what they will of it. Some people found it very disturbing. I thought it kind of fit with what he was doing. Narrative cliches. No. In fact, the whole film is premised on kind of dispelling all kinds of cliches and truisms. And the whole kind of idea, you know, this kind of trope of the apathetic big city and, you know, and where no one gives a shit about anybody. And it's very questioning in its approach. Part of what you start to realize is that original account kind of people responded to it because it did kind of offer this kind of kind of trite kind of morality tale, you know, like, oh, indifference leads to evil or something yeah. in it. And it kind of made sense to people. It made people feel uh, like they were better than yeah, I think it, Yeah, I think it kind of gave people a sense of moral superiority, yeah. you know. So it totally avoids that kind of thing. Racial and gender obtuseness. No, the killer, uh, Winston Mosley, uh, was a black and Kitty was white. Bill Genovese talks a lot about the fact, though, that this guy, uh, two weeks before he killed Kelly, brutally murdered a black woman in a somewhat different way. But I think, by the way, um, Mosley was diagnosed as being a necrophile. He actually liked to have like try to rape or have sex with women who are almost dead dying or dead you know and it's really Ooh. horrible he was oh really horrible horrible and one of the things that is interesting though that comes up and that had been i think revealed before but is he is very matter of fact it was that his sister kitty was a lesbian now his family didn't know about it you know so this was 1964 and the roommate that she was living with was really her lover. Mm-hmm. It seems like the bar where Kitty worked, everyone knew. Or at least some claim they did, some claim they didn't. But yeah. it seemed like they were all pretty cool about it. The family didn't know. And whenever Bill learned that, he didn't really say in the film. He was much younger than her, right? He was 16 he was, and yeah. she was 26. Yeah. She was out yeah. of the house. Yeah. So, yeah. so, Or she was maybe even a little older. She, she was, was older at least 10 to 12 like years older. Yeah. She, I think she may have been the oldest one in yeah. the family. Yeah. Um, and he has two other brothers. One's younger than him and one's older than him. And so what's interesting is he's very matter of fact about the fact that Kitty was a lesbian. But there is this kind of, he interviews that former roommate and... She talks about, like, he does say, like, Kitty used to bring this girl to New Canaan, where my family lived, and we never saw her after, uh, I believe she came to the funeral. I can't even remember now if she did go to the funeral or not. She basically kind of says, you know, your family treated me like shit after Kitty died. And he's like, yeah, they really did. You know, and yeah. I'm really sorry. And so I would say, actually, there's a sensitivity about about it. But it's not like he doesn't like, you know, again, you know, like you're saying, beat the drum or anything. Right. It's just, it's kind of interesting factor. And it's part of who Kitty was that he thinks should be talked about now as just something that was part of who she was as a person. Lack of good visuals. I think this film does a very good job. There's a lot of good, there's crime scene photos, very effectively deployed, though there isn't anything that shows her graphically, her body, but there's things like bloodstains on the wall of the foyer, mm. where the last part of the attack took place, the blood on the floor. There's a lot of really interesting photographs and even old film of that neighborhood 
Um, and then new film of him going to all these neighbors and going to the various apartments where people mm-hmm. who saw part of the crime or some of the crime or um, and interviewing people and everything all around that area. And the, it looks virtually unchanged. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. One of the things that's really interesting. interesting. And he, in a sense, kind of walks slowly throughout the film. It's kind of walking through the crime. And you're right there in that neighborhood. Lots and lots of old photographs and home movies of Kitty, mm. which is great. Her name yeah. was Catherine, by the way. That's yeah. her. And which is great because she slowly over the course of the film becomes like this real person. And that's one of the things that throughout the film that he says is he, he says when, after she died, it, she, she became totally defined. He said in American society, like she was just defined by her death. Mm-hmm. She became this just symbol. And he said in my family, he said, we couldn't talk about her death. And he said, we didn't talk about her at all. The younger, he interviews his younger nieces and nephews who are like in their twenties. And they're like, the only thing we know is that it's, you know, and like one girl says, I came upon her in my sociology textbook, mm. you know, and we don't know anything about her except she was killed horribly. So part of the film that's kind of uplifting, even though it's such a horrible crime, is that you kind of get to know. He feels like he's kind of bringing his sister a lot back alive in a way. So the visuals are great, I think, and very, very effectively employed. Missing pieces. There aren't any major ones here. And when I first did this, I didn't take anything off. Though, as I was thinking, as you guys were giving your reviews, the one thing that isn't quite clear is how did he come up to do this kind of quest? Why did he decide to? Because his brothers are really against it, and it's mm. very painful for them. And you just see it's so heartrending. The family conversations. There's this one dinner where he's kind of talking about his latest yeah. discovery, yeah, yeah, and yeah. what the older brother is just kind of going like this. The younger brother it dissolves in tears and basically just begs him. Just begs him, like, please, stop. I can't, I can't take it anymore. It's no. just horrible. And, and they seem as concerned about him. Yeah, yeah. You can tell his family, his, his children, right. like, they're concerned that he's just way overboard. And he was the, probably the closest to her of the siblings. But I think, I suspect that one, they do mention it. In 2004, to give the New York Times credit, you know, because there was kind of, it was this Abe Rosenthal, Rosenthal, who's the editor at the time of the original article, Mm -hmm. who apparently even wrote that lead. It wasn't the the reporter. It was Abe Rosenthal. Uh He's the one who kind of, and then he wrote this book, kind of. I remember reading this New York Times article. It was really incredible where the New York Times article went back and basically kind of began to deconstruct that old yes. story and yeah. say, this is what really happened. This was really not accurate, and but isn't really made clear. So I don't know if I should take off maybe a half a point for you, that. It's up to um, you. I think maybe I will, just because I think that is a real question yeah. I have. Like, why, what brought him into this obsessive yeah. multi-year quest? You know, they show him, like, Working on the bulletin board in 2006, the movie doesn't, you know, isn't still being filmed in like 2014, you know. So the anachronisms, anachronisms, inaccuracies, I don't know, see or hear of any. Storytelling, I think there's a really good, well-constructed arc of this documentary that it, the way it kind of walks you through his process and and all the different people he interviews and and where the one of the last interviews is with a woman who, in fact, was with Kitty when she died, a neighbor mm-hmm. who actually rushed to help yeah. her. And it's very, very moving and everything. He tries even to talk to Mosley, who at that point mm. was still alive, in a very kind of strangely non-judgmental way. I know, you know? it's you weird. Know? It's I weird. mean, and, the, and the, you have these prison officials talking to him, and this 
like victim's advocate saying, like, why do you want to do this? And he said, I want to hear what he has to say about it. I want to know what he was thinking, you know, when he saw my sister in her red car at three in the morning at that intersection. And what? And they said, what if he refuses to? He says, well, he said, on one hand, it'd be unfortunate. Yeah, I'd really like to hear what he had to say. He said, on the other hand, it'd be a huge relief, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, the st- I got off the point. The story arc is very effective. It's really riveting, but it's very reflective. It's not like a... um you know, it's not like a blood and guts kind of true crime right, thing. In fact, right. it's not even so much a true crime thing. It's about his own kind of quest to kind of, yeah. you know, freshness. I think it's very fresh. I mean, it's what's ironic is that it's a story we all think yeah. we know, yeah, right? Know. So yeah, like you were saying name. with Watergate and everything, to kind of get this new perspective yeah. on what has almost become like this huge cliche, cultural cliche is very, very interesting and very fresh. Repetition. You no, know, there are certain things that are brought up several times but so almost like each but time there's a more, reason there's yeah. a reason yeah. and it's kind of elucidated further and there are occasional some of the visuals some of the films of her are shown more than once but again it's yeah. all in the it's it's appropriate and to make a point beating the drum no and not at all in fact in fact you would think oh he's he's gonna be it's gonna be this big thing of like we must have the death penalty because yeah. you know, like Mosley yeah. should be a frying yeah. you know yeah. or anything and it's not at all the biggest thing about it is his obsession with finding out the truth he is amazingly not judgmental himself, as I said. So he's not like pursuing some sort of agenda or he's not like pro or anti-death penalty, for instance. He's not trying to bash the New York Times or the the media or the police, everything. He just sort of wants to find out what really happened. And and in a sense, just for his own peace of mind. It it always astounded me watching that. How a newspaper could get something so wrong, yeah, yeah, and that that could become this this bigger than what happens right. story. And the wrong thing is what became so big. Well, yeah. what's interesting too, especially I think it's worth saying in this day and age when good news media, when the news media is being bashed so badly and good journalism is not being valued, is that there is a possibility of going the other way. And one of the things that was part of one of the lessons of this was that the New York Times had a lot of clout. And people didn't question it enough. Mm-hmm. And in fact, apparently the reporter who wrote that story wasn't real happy with the story. But Abe Rosenthal kind of stepped in and took control of it. Yeah. And then reporters for other, like the Herald Tribune was, was that right. one that's no longer around, knew that there were fishy things about the story and it didn't really pan out. And they had talked to people in the neighborhood who said, yeah, well, I called the police. The you know? mad. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, people in the neighborhood. They were made to well, look they, like a bunch of assholes. Yeah. And they said yeah. they stopped talking because they were like, we were just made to, we're misquoted, we're made to look like yeah. like horrible people and bill genevieve says well why didn't you pursue it and he said it was the new york times he said back then man i mean you just didn't in abe rosenthal he said you just didn't want to cross them you know no. they were very powerful they had so much clout and you, he obviously abe rosenthal had a, a narrative that he maybe he felt was true yeah it was compelling or maybe he just thought it was a good story thought, yeah. his good story, story was better was than what yeah. happened yeah, yeah. but even Nowadays, and um, I don't want to get on the bashing journalism bandwagon, um, it, but just in my experience, and it, this has always been the case, you know, people complain about the media, you know, like what a Rosenthal did, wanting to, you know, being biased and all yeah. this. The biggest issue with the media, both now and 50-whatever years ago, is laziness. Yeah, yeah. And when one media outlet tells a story... The other ones just keep telling right. that story, and especially now with the internet, it's, it's so easy and paste. to yeah. pick up false yeah. information and never ask the source yourself, right, right. and never get it, 
And so bad information. I mean, we see this a lot in the stories we do on this. And we see it in our local media that misinformation or poorly reported information just keeps getting repeated over and over. And you try to find the right information. And all the media outlets are saying it the same yeah, confusing you find way. It, you find well, one you thing that I will say that's kind of missing from this, but I wouldn't count it against it because it's not what the film was about, but it is more what I got into when I read a couple of books about that are fairly recent that deal with all this kind of reexamination of the case. And that is um, there's a kind of larger social and cultural context that you can see, like why did this particular take on that story become so popular and so riveting to people? And yeah, it fed into, you know, like crime was beginning to go up at that time in the United States. You know, there was this, you know, kind of unsettling aspects of the 1960s and this kind of idea that there are all these people just don't give a shit kind of, now, I don't want to say appealed to people, but it was kind of what people wanted to believe yeah. about at least about the big bad cities yeah, you know right, and yes. so when he interviews Rosenthal who was still alive when he 2006 when he interviewed him Rosenthal's kind of like yeah, he's saying what weren't there really I mean even the numbers are quite right there were uh, really 37 partial witnesses and, and Rosenthal kind of says well you know it doesn't really matter because it was a great story and it, and it so, made yeah. and it made and it, and it said something that had to be that needed to be said well also you know? and, also yeah. it helped and I'm not saying that this was why Rosenthal did what he did, but this was when white middle-class people were leaving the city. Yeah, yeah. And this certainly helped that narrative and helped build the suburbs. And there was a lot of money to be had by the people who were building the suburbs. And I'm not saying that this was cynically guided towards that, but it benefited a lot of people to scare people with, money out of cities and into suburbs. Well, I'd give it 9.5 then, because I think I will take a little off I, I really I, it's not quite clear now how I want to watch it again I watched it's it about really a year good. ago it's really good I highly recommend yeah. it it's really riveting well that was a very thank good you. review to cap off your oh, very you. good oh, thank, yes. you. thank you thank you for thanks for joining us, us. I, I really enjoyed doing it Yay. well we enjoyed Yay. having you we'll probably see you next year I'll yeah. let you know if there are any any new developments any updates on that or on Kyron poor little Kyron and we'll be back you're next right yeah I'm gonna do a local one a local one and I guess that's it for okay. tonight, right? And you can find us. Our website is Crime and Stuff Online. You can listen to us anywhere you listen. Right. You can find out anything you need to know on our website, Crime, Crime and Stuff, Stuff Online. Online. And we're on Twitter and stuff. Yeah. Too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Oh, no, it's not. She's an American. <laughs> I had her. Not. Oh my god. Oh my god, don't cut that out. I will. We have a lot Maybe of, I will. No, Maybe don't I won't. cut it out because we have a lot of listeners. I know. I don't want them to be yeah, mad at um, me. I don't be mad at me. <laughs>